Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible meditation teacher and author, Lodro Winsler. Hi, Lodro, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Today, we are going to talk about self-love and broken hearts. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about our illustrious guest. For those that don't know, Lodro Rinsler is a meditation teacher and the author of six meditation books. He is also the co-founder of Mindful Meditation Studios in New York City. His books, Walk Like a Buddha and The Buddha Walks Into the Office, both have received independent publisher book awards. Lodro has taught meditation for 19 years in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and travels frequently for his books, having spoken across the world at conferences, universities, and businesses as diverse as Google, Harvard University, and the White House. Named one of the 50 innovators shaping the future of wellness, Rinsler's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Good Morning America, CBS, and NBC. Hello, Lodro. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thanks so much. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well as well, despite all the things that are happening in the world. I have so many pictures uh, coming from friends in California about the fires and the red post-apocalyptic look of the sky. But that's the reason that we're here, right? To find calm in the midst of the storm. And before we get into our topic of self-love and broken hearts today, I just wanted to check in with you because I've been seeing lots of yoga and meditation studios closed down indefinitely, but others are trying their best to pivot their business model online and in other avenues. So I'm just curious, how have you been weathering the proverbial storm of our current times? And what do you think the future holds for meditation communities and for the Sangha that we are so used to being a part of? It's a great question. Yeah, thank you for asking it. I um, have been teaching meditation this fall, actually marks 20 years, which is crazy to think about. But, you know, when I started teaching meditation, it was basically just, you know, if you wanted to learn Buddhist meditation, you had to go to Tibetan Buddhist place or Zen Buddhist place, the Insight Meditation Society. There's very few places where we could go, like a meditation studio, like Mindful. And of course, in the last five years, a lot of them have popped up. And I know, you know, many of them are having a hard time, and that's very normal. Of course, you know, any retail business, of course, you have can have customers in your space for six months. So mindful, you know, the meditation studios I co-founded, I actually, not that I had any insight into what was coming, but I transitioned out of my operational role in 2019. And my wife and I moved upstate to have a little place up here. And have and I've been here this entire time. And I started building more of an online community of one-on-one students who like to work with me, people who enjoy, have enjoyed my books or have enjoyed my teachings before that wanted to continue to connect. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and Mindful, unfortunately, had to close its doors to all three studios. It started just with one and two, it's all three. And, you know, it's, of course, very understandable. 
but they themselves have pivoted into online meditation offerings, so live classes seven days a week. And I'm seeing that, you know, it's a growing trend for a lot of places. But, you know, to find a good format that people can be together and be in community together, even online, is really important. So the work that I've been doing for the last, you know, year, year and a half, actually, since, you know, really starting to focus more on my own role as teacher is to provide community support. I mean, it's so wonderful that we have things like Zoom and Mighty Networks and the ways that people can sort of communicate. But also, you know, I'm a little old-fashioned in just sort of building community. And, uh, you know, we have, when people work with me, they join an accountability group, meaning that they actually get to contact and maybe it's text, maybe it's phone, but they are in regular touch with a small group of people and they're just checking in on each other regularly around their practice. And I think, you know, gathering in person is not uh, something that's really available indoors these days. I think more and more we're starting to see ways that people are able to connect and find friendship and community even beyond the four walls of something like mindful. You know, it's sad to see things like that go. And it's also wonderful to see that the evolution of the teachings continue to manifest as they have. For me, you know, over the course of my lifetime, it's always looked different every five to 10 years. And I'll be very curious to answer the last part of your question, you know, what will come next? I'm very open to it. But I do think that, you know, even transcending some of the basic meditation practices, we'll find more and more paths of study around Buddhism and meditation online. It is really wonderful joining an online community and seeing people from all over the world coming to meditate together in the same space. So it's true that the possibility that online offers is for us to gather no matter where we are in the world. And as a meditator, I know you are very familiar with embracing impermanence and the changing reality of the world. But I do want to ask, like you started these group of studios called Mindful and then they're all closed down. And I'm wondering, do you feel heartbroken about that? You know, it's an interesting question. I don't know if that's a source of deep heartbreak for me. So it's not like, oh, I built this thing and it's no longer there because it's actually never been about me. It's been about the community and in particular, the community of students who come and the community of teachers who support them in, in discovering that they're okay, that they're basically whole, complete good as is. And that's continuing on and it's just taking new forms. So, you know, we had a lovely gathering of people who had connected to the studios and it, that was heartbreaking to see and bear witness to so many people who are just like, oh, this, there's so many memories here and I'm sorry, I can't create more in this space. But, you know, in the grand scheme of everything that's going on in this pandemic and the economy being what it is, you know, I think this is just one of many heartbreaks that are happening for people. You know, I, I think this is just one of many forms of loss that are occurring. And, and if this was the only form, I think maybe we'd all pause and grieve a little longer. But it seems like there's so many other ways that we need to show up and support one another that it's actually, well, it's, I'm sad that it, the shoes are closing. It's it's not the part of heartbreak in my life right now. <laughs> right. No, it's important to put that into context. And you just mentioned that many heartbreaks are happening right now in the world. So let's talk about this term heartbreak, because many people associate the term heartbreak with simply the end of a relationship. You know, somebody says that they just got dumped and that their heart is totally broken. But you write in your book and other teachings that there are millions of ways that heartbreak can manifest in our lives. So what is heartbreak to you? Yeah. So in my last book, which was called Love Hurts, which of course, even in the title, people think, oh, it must be romantic heartbreak, but it's not. It's Love Hurts, colon, Buddhist advice for the heartbroken. By the way, I received an email today from someone in Italy. There's an Italian version out there. They have the better translation and the better title, which I never would have come up with which is the translation of Love Hurts there is the Buddhist art 
of mending a broken heart. Mm. And I love that. And uh, it's much better than what I believe is the Croatian one, which was love makes sick. <laughs> maybe more direct, but, you know, I like the Italian. It's very poetic. But, you know, mm. within that, I, I define this term heartbreak, which has been around, you know, depends on who you ask. People would say there's biblical references, but it's been around 1600. The way I work with it is the aspect of our expectations not being met in some way. And this is a, just a facet of being a human being. So, it, you know, as you said, it can be, I thought I was going to be with this person forever. And then we're not. And it's not that the person left us. I mean, yes, that's pain. But there's also the fact that it's like the expectation hasn't been met. And that's what's really causing us harm. We thought we were going to be with them. My classic example that I mentioned in the book, I sat down with all these sorts of people one-on-one to hear their heartbreak stories, which is a whole other thing altogether that I it took on what is known as heartbreak appointments. And people would come and I'd sort of just hold space. I'd ask maybe one to four questions of them in 20 minutes, but they would otherwise just have space to talk about heartbreak and their experience of it. And one person came in, and she was mourning the death of her grandmother. And the interesting thing there is, she knew that her grandmother was older, and that her grandmother was going to die. And it was the fact that her grandmother died a week before her wedding. And the idea was, my grandmother's going to come to my wedding. She had a very detailed plan. She's going to sit here, and she's going to have this specialty cocktail that we're having the bartender make for her. She's going to I'll be sassy to my friends. These are the friends that she's going to meet. And I'm going to, I've already told them that they have to go introduce themselves. And then she died. And all of those stories that were like, this is what's going to happen with grandma at the wedding just died with her. It's like, oh, I thought it was going to be like this. And it's not. And that's what it really shook her. And yes, obviously there's the pain of losing someone. And then there's the second pain of, but I thought it wasn't going to be fine. And that's where heartbreak is really like, I mean, I don't mean to sound excited about such a horrible term, but it's such a beautiful term at the same time, because it's like, it physically feels like our heart is breaking. So that's where the meat of it is. That's the juiciness of it. Like, okay, yes, there's going to be pain in life. We know that. We know that there's sickness and and aging and death, but it's the fact that it doesn't happen in the way that we thought it was going to that really causes a lot of pain. So really beautiful. So the heartbreak is the aspect of our expectations not being met in some way. And you just described this sort of interview process that you went in, what you call heartbreak appointments. One example was a person who was mourning the death of her grandmother and not being able to attend their wedding, which is truly heartbreaking. And I'm wondering, what are some other stories that you heard from people's heartbreak appointments? You know, it's an interesting one because it's not like heartbreak it manifests with like a one-to-one reaction that, you know, we get 10 heartbreak points for losing a parent and one for a cat. It's like, you know, people would come in and they say, I thought I was going to sit here and talk to you about my boyfriend leaving me, but I actually, my cat died three years ago. And to be honest with you, I'm not actually over it. And that's what's coming up for me today. And it was very genuine and real. And that's what it is. It's like our heart breaks for what it breaks. People would say, I want to come in and talk about deep political divides and how it's breaking my heart. But here's a very long story of like how I fell in love with my sponsor, my addiction program, and how they led me on and led me astray. There's, oh, I mean, my gosh, you know, any number of stories, someone who was married for 20 years and found out that their partner was gay, someone who just the pain of like having a lifelong friend that they no longer talk to. It's someone came in and said, I lost my dream house. You know, I, I thought I was going to have this whole situation and now my parents just crumbling around it and the whole thing. It was like, it all started with house, you know, that's just gorgeous. So it, it's any number of things. And none of these are, are bad. And in my mind, there's no like hierarchy of heartbreak. We suffer for what we suffer for. 
And there are times where we might feel deep suffering on a societal level, but there's deep, you know, systemic injustice. There might be interpersonal suffering of like, oh, I had a, you know, I lost someone either through a breakup or divorce or death, or even just personal. Like I've been holding my mind in this state of agitation and heartbreak for so long, which is actually, believe it or not, the topic of the next book that I'm putting out, which is called Take Back Your Mind which is actually we need to take back our mind. The, the subtitle is Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times because we are living in very anxious times and those three levels of personal, interpersonal, societal, it's like there's always something for us to either be stressed or heartbroken about and really, you know, to actually tend to the mind itself, knowing that there's always going to be stress. There's always things that we can feel heartbroken over. How do we hold ourselves grounded and open at the same time? Buddhist advice for anxious times. It's so timely because we are living in very anxious times. And we already talked about, for example, the fires in California. And we talked about this pandemic. And I imagine people's hearts are breaking every day in all sorts of different reasons about the environment and about people getting ill and even about the violence that we are seeing from police and then the uprising of protests. So we have all this heartbreak and I'm just wondering, what are we going to do about it? So how do we move through this heartbreak? Look, I, I don't want to pick on you because it's the most common thing in the world. And it's such a Western view that we have that we need to do something about it, right? Like if we feel heartbroken, what do I do? Give me something to do that I can, you know, here's the three easy steps. And then I get over that person or I no longer grieve my father or whatever it is. And it's unfortunately my experience of heartbreak, and I'll just share it from my own experience and the teachings that I've studied and, and practiced, it's less a thing of doing and more a way of being. Can we genuinely just be with the experience so that we don't shy away from, we don't tamp down the emotions, we don't try and distract ourselves? And that's often what we do. We, we say, okay, in order, I just need to get through this so that during this time, I'm going to binge watch Netflix, I'm going to drink, I'm going to you know, go on Tinder. And at some point, we exhaust the show that we were watching and we wake up hungover and in bed with someone that we don't really like. And lo and behold, we say, this isn't working. <laughs> so at some point, instead of trying to do something about the heartbreak, either personal or interpersonal or societal, we need to learn to be with it. We need to learn to like actually work with our minds long enough to, as I said before, like actually get grounded, present, in touch with reality as it is. And then we'll be much more skillful in how we show up and help in the same way that like, if you've ever had someone who is really, you know, never, it's like the go-to example of someone who's bad at relationships, quote unquote, bad at relationships, and they're going around telling everyone relationship advice. It's like, if we haven't tamed our own mind, how are we going to be able to help others? If we haven't actually like learned to be okay with ourselves, how are we going to be okay with other people? How are we going to be helpful to them? How are we going to be able to deal with some of the big systemic issues that we need to deal with if we haven't worked with our own mind? We actually have a moment here where we have a visceral example in, in the U.S. political system of like, no one's actually trying to talk about reality. We're all trying to talk about why you know, the other people are wrong. Here's my idea about why you're wrong. And then, you know, I have friends on the other side of the aisle and they say, here's why our guy is better than your guy. And here's why you're wrong. You know, you liberal snowflake. <laughs> there's something here where there's no sense of seeking to be present and open to ourselves, our environment, other people. It's I'm going to give my fixed opinions and ideas and propagate them. And maybe that'll help. 
And we have two sides of an aisle right now saying, maybe that will help. And then each one's just starting to vilify the other in response because they don't think that's going to work. So there, there has to be something here where we start to set, set aside our fixed ideas of what ought to happen, what I think needs to happen, and learn to rest in reality long enough to see the real wisdom of what might need to happen, what the moment is calling for. So, you know, it's a shitty answer. I apologize for swearing on your lovely podcast, but, you know, it is a shitty answer that's like, well, we need to work with ourselves first. But the more we actually start to work with our own mind the more we start to notice, oh, I'm here, I'm present, and I actually understand what's needed. If you've ever walked down the street and you're noticed there's someone struggling with their groceries and you know a loaf of bread falls off the top and they keep walking, and you, in that moment you say, oh my gosh, I've got to do something, because that's what the situation is calling for. You, you run over and say, excuse me, ma'am, I think you dropped this bread. We don't say, oh my gosh, these people, they're always so horrible, and we walk away. We're just roused by being present enough that compassion just naturally takes over. So we have to look for moments where we say, oh, here's where compassion can take over and actually be present enough that we can find the skillful thing. So I love so many themes that you just brought up. So first of all, we don't want to stop doing and think about trying to fix our heartbreak and more allow ourselves to be with it and to become grounded, present and in touch with reality as it is. And that includes setting aside fixed ideas of what ought to happen, because I think when a lot of people experience heartbreak, they do feel like they should get over it or they should be beyond it and the experience that they're having. So I'm wondering, like, what is the process or what expectations? I don't know what we just talked about, not having expectations, but what kind of expectations might somebody have once they do this shift of their awareness? So what I mean is we already talked about different levels of heartbreak, the loss of a family member, the loss of a pet, the loss of a job, even just the loss of an imagined future that we had for ourselves. And then we feel our heartbreak. And you mentioned how the temptation is to do something like run away or numb it and distract ourselves from feeling what is ours to feel. And when we begin to shift our awareness to being more present with our experience, what are some things we should expect? Like, how does our heartbreak transform? How does it change? What do we experience when we do become present with the pain that we are feeling? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. Thank you. You know, one of the things that came out of that previous book was uh, Love Hurt. You know, I write in there, if you really think you'll never love again, here's my personal email address. It's been the same one for a million years. You email me your phone number, I will call you and I will tell you that is not the case. Because I honestly believe that. That we really, we think, oh my gosh, I've been too badly hurt. And everyone, by the way, they'll write a sentence, they'll write just their phone number, they'll write, the, you know, I think the longest clocked in around 5,000 words. And there's something about having that reassurance to someone call you and say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to like, even this painful, devastating thing I'm feeling right now, it's subject to the truth of impermanence. So it's going to shift. It's going to fade. At some point I'm going to heal and I know I'll love again. So, you know, all I do is basically echo those words to that person, but that sense of like, okay, I need to realize that I can just be present to this as it is, as it arises. It's really hard for people. So we all need the encouragement, I would say, to learn to be with the emotions. And in that book and in the new book in particular, actually, there's I offer like about three practices around just working with strong emotions. So one of the practices is not dissimilar from the main practice that's often taught, which is mindfulness. 
we hear instead of mindfulness of the breath, it's mindfulness of our emotions, that we notice what stories we're telling ourselves and we drop the story and we come down to feeling the emotion underneath. So for example, my boss is such a jerk and they're always asking me to do X, Y, and Z. And then we drop the story because we caught ourselves and say, oh, I don't have to be in that story. I don't have to hold myself in that state of stress. But then when we look underneath, we say, oh, there is stress. There is anxiety there. Can I just rest with it? Can I be present with it for a moment, two moments? And the more we do that, the more we might notice these emotions, they're not as solid and real and fixed as we might expect. They're actually much more ephemeral. You know, if I asked you, what were you feeling three weeks ago at this exact time, you probably could not tell me because it's changed since then. You might say, I think I was angry at someone then. You know, fine. But it's changed since then. We felt other things. It's not been the predominant thing for three weeks straight, uninterrupted, I imagine. They change. You know, we can even look at the very nature of emotions, which is another practice I offer, that we would even examine, like, where does this emotion come from? Not like, who did this? Why am I triggered? It's like, if I look at my iPhone or something, I think the iPhones are what, made in China? So I know it came from a certain place, and there's a factory, and there's a whole these circumstances around it, and how it got to me. If I said, where is my frustration? Where did it get born? It's impossible for me to answer. So I say, where does it go when I'm not currently feeling? It's impossible for me to answer. I don't know where it goes. So we realize at some point, even by becoming gently inquisitive with our experience, that maybe the emotions aren't as stuck, as solid and permanent as we suspect. And that can be quite liberating. So once we begin to be present with our emotions, we notice, and I love this phrase, that they are not as solid and real and fixed as we might expect. And I think that is really promising for a lot of people because when you do feel like a sense of heartbreak, it can really be overwhelming. It can almost feel like this just monster of an emotion has overtaken your life. And once we almost invite that monster for tea, we notice how it changes and how it's subject to impermanence like everything else. And your approach just seems very kind. It seems very attentive and loving. And it seems like an important part of self-love is to be present with our emotions and to give them the tenderness and kindness uh, that we would give somebody else having those challenging emotions. So I'm wondering, what does self-love mean from the Buddhist perspective? What does it mean to bring love into our emotional lives? Yeah. So coming out of the Buddhist tradition, when we talk about love, there's this particular term that's really helpful here which is bodhicitta. It's a Sanskrit term. And I promise I won't use many of these foreign terms, but uh, bodhi would be translated open or awake. Chitta would be heart or mind. And the idea here is that we all possess this open or tender heart mind. And out of that comes love. Love doesn't have to be dependent on other beings. It doesn't have to be dependent on circumstances. We all have the innate capacity to love. We all love something. There's, you know, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche, once said famously, everybody loves something, even if it's only tortillas. <laughs> and that's more <laughs> of like a lustful love, I suppose. Oh, I love tortillas. But, you know, the capacity to feel open and loving is just innate. So if we're walking down the street and we see a mother and her child, and the mother is leaning slightly to the right so that her child can reach up and hold her hand properly, that And our heart just softens in that moment. That's love. We love for love's sake. It's just natural and fluid. When we are watching, you know, we're in the park and we see 
the area that all the dogs play and we're watching the dogs we play and we smile and we feel a sense of openness that's love, that's bodhicitta. So there's any number of moments throughout our day that the world is just asking us, would you like to fall? Would you like to be open-hearted here? And we can either do that or not do that. We always make the choice. Often we make the choice of, actually, I'd rather be held in stress. Thank you. I'm going to keep playing out the same three stories in my head over and over again in the hopes that I can somehow <laughs> solve it. And that's not a very nice way of being. But we have the alternative that we could just offer a sense of open-heartedness. That's, that's the real joy of it. So it's always available to us. Uh, so promising. We all have this choice to stay in open-hearted love. And I also love what you said earlier, that we all possess this open and tender heart slash mind right? Because we're so mind focused, but of course it's all connected. So when you say like we all possess this open, tender heart, mind, we all possess the capacity for bodhicitta or open, awake heart, mind. I'm wondering why don't we feel this way? You know, in your book, you write that love is our true nature. It's innate to who we are. And you also quote your teacher in your book that says that true love is the natural energy of our settled mind. But Generally, day to day, we don't feel this way. You know, we wake up in the morning and it might even feel quite grumpy or stressed. And it's like, I don't think my innate self is love at all. So it's almost a two-part question. So it's a combination of why don't we generally feel like our innate nature is love? And how might we put ourselves on the path to self-discovery of this love that we all have inside of us? I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the new book take back your mind is this sense of we feel like stress is something that happens to us that we have no control over and as you said we wake up in the morning and our mind is off to the races and we don't we have no say in this it's just what happens and if you knew my life you'd understand it and blah 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 there's an old buddhist analogy known as the two arrows and i sort of alluded to this very briefly earlier but it's nice to do this analogy actually which is you're walking through the forest and out of nowhere an arrow comes and hits you in the arm. And in that moment, we actually have uh, a gut reaction. It's like, oh my gosh, there's pain. But then we layer on top all sorts of stories. We start saying, you know what? Who shot me? I bet it was Chuck that shot me. Chuck is always out to get <laughs> me. I'm going to tell everyone at work what a jerk he is. I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm right and he's wrong. And I'm going to play out the same conversation I'm going to have with him. I'm going to talk to my boss about this. And we are off to the races, and that's what's known as the second arrow. So there's the first arrow, which is the pain that we experience in life. And that's just, so when I talked about heartbreak, you know, it's, it's just a part of being human. Like there's something here, like there's going to be various forms of loss and impermanence and, and death and all sorts of things. There's going to be arrows that hit us. And then there's the second arrow, which is that we hold ourselves in that state. So in a first arrow, you know, a less dramatic example would be a triggering email from your boss. And you say, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, they're always like this. I can't believe they emailed me at nine o'clock at night. When do they expect me to get back to them? And that's the second arrow that, you know, and from that moment until the moment that we actually deal with what the boss asked us to do, um, we hold ourselves in stress. There's no one asking, the boss did not say, hey, can you do a review of this and get your thoughts by tomorrow? Also, please hold yourself in stress the entire time. That did not come through, I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm not your boss, but that's the idea. That it's like it's us. It's us working with our own minds. So we have a choice. Like we really, as we talked about before, we have a choice. If I turn to you and I said, "Would you rather be stressed out or would you rather be relaxed?" What would you choose? <laughs> I think I'd choose to be relaxed. 
You know, it's funny because it's like this, this question has a hundred percent success rate. Um, and, you know, everyone said, you know, if I said contentment, happiness, whatever, anything but stress. Um, but in that moment, you made a choice. You said, okay, I don't want to be stressed. And the more direct answer to your question in terms of like, okay, but what do we do? This is where meditation becomes really helpful. So the basic mindfulness practice, you know, I go into it in much more depth than basically all of my books, but the short form is we take a relaxed, but uplifted posture. That's step one. Step two is we connect to the breath. Step three is when we notice that we've gotten completely distracted by these sorts of stressful thoughts or any thoughts, really, we come back to the breath. And it is that simple. That's all we need to do. But what happens is we're sitting there and we're meditating on the breath. And then that thought about, oh my gosh, my boss, what did they want from me? They're so demanding. We acknowledge it. And then we come back to the breath. In that moment, we do what you just did, which is we choose relaxation over stress. We say, actually, I don't want to hold my mind in that state. I'm going to come back to the present moment. I'm going to relax with my body breathing. If we do that once in a meditation session, that's nice. But most of us do it dozens, if not hundreds of times, which is the rough equivalent of going to the gym. And instead of lifting a 20-pound weight once, we lift it dozens, if not hundreds of times. And at times it feels uncomfortable. At times it feels like I don't want to be doing this. But at the end of the day, that's how the muscle grows stronger. And same thing with our ability to work with stress and heartbreak. It's like we actually need to acknowledge that we drift off in thoughts about these things. We come back and we're just able to be present. And every time we do that, we are making the choice not to be held in that state and actually literally rewiring the brain to do exactly that. So, you know, we call it meditation practice. And it's because we're practicing for the rest of our waking hours of our day. That's the beautiful thing, that it just naturally starts to seep into all the other waking hours. So I love this analogy. So the first arrow is the pain we experience in life, which is, of course, inevitable. Things happen to us. But the second arrow is how we hold ourselves in that state. And it's interesting hearing this analogy from you because it feels like there's a hundred second arrows. <laughs> like we get a common cold and and that's the first arrow. And then we say, oh, I shouldn't get sick or I can't believe that so-and-so sneezed on me in the in the bus and and I have things to do and I can't take a break for myself. And there's like all sorts of second arrows we get hit with in order to keep ourselves in that same state. And that's where meditation comes in is we are able to make that choice and we make that choice again and again. And we practice being present and open hearted and in tune, get in touch with our own bodhicitta, our own awakened self and mind. And we can almost connect that to this idea that everyone has bodhicitta. Everyone has this awakened heart mind in them as well. And you also write about in your book that along with this innate nature of presence and open-heartedness, we also have an innate goodness and in that we shouldn't give up on anybody. And I'm wondering, what's the natural outcropping of recognizing that everyone has bodhicitta and what does it mean to not give up on anybody? Yeah. So at the crux of Buddhism as a tradition, there is this belief that we all possess the ability to be awake. And we were just talking about it in the sense of open-heartedness. That's definitely part of it. And we can call this Buddha nature. We, in some traditions, we even call it basic goodness. The idea that we are basically whole, complete good as is. It's not like a good versus bad Star Wars thing. It's the sense of, you know, are we actually, when we, for example, are meditating and we're with the breath and we just relax for a moment, we feel okay. We feel genuinely okay as we are. We don't think we need to be more or do more. That's the sense of basic goodness. 
So basic is not like as a negative thing. Basic is like foundational, inherent, innate, primordial, just a part of who we are. Everyone is inherently good. Everyone is inherently whole, complete, as is. And then we get lost in all of the stories. And, you know, it's like a little societal whisper, a little voice in our ear saying, you know, if you really want to be whole and complete, then you've got to get a better education. You've got to get a better job. You've got to get married. You need to be married by this age. You need to have a house at this age. You need to have this many kids. And, you, you know, whatever version of it is for us, there's always going to be something new that we can say, well, if I get that, if I get that, you know, new iPhone, then I'll be happy. You know, a spouse who loves me, then I'll be happy. And we can keep doing that or we can actually work to realize that underneath the stories of what we are told that we need or stories that we tell ourselves about things that might make us happy but often do not, then at some point we might just say, oh, I can be happy as is. I can actually relax into who I basically am. And who I am is basically whole, complete, and good. So we can work to realize that underneath the stories of what we are told that we need, we can find that we can be happy just as we are. And that ties into a question I wanted to ask you, because part of our meditation practice, part of our self-love practice is being present with who we are and accepting ourselves for who we are and also discovering this awakeness inside of us. And this is the aspect of being. And simultaneously, there are things we can do to improve ourselves and also to take care of ourselves. And I'm wondering how we find that balance. So for example, in your book, you write about four ways to take care of yourself, such as exercise and such as sleep. And when do we want to shift from being to doing things in order to take care of ourselves? And going through heartbreak, it can be very helpful, for example, to like reach out to a friend, right? So when do we want to start doing things? <laughs> and how do we find that balance of being and doing? The slight distinction that I always think about is like not that we need to like improve ourselves or become better than who we are, but just actually to care for ourselves long enough that we can come home to who we are. The four things that you're referring to, you know, these are known as the four exhilarations. I think they might have even come from a Taoist tradition before they were taught by Tibetan Buddhists, but you know, I, I learned them through Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And they said that if you do these four things in one day, then you're going to have unlimited energy. And I love that because it sounds very sexy when I put it that way. But they're the most basic things in the world. It's eat well, sleep well, exercise, and meditate, which is common sense, I realize. But how often do we do all four of those things in a day? You know, maybe we sleep in and we feel very good about that, but then we don't go exercise or just get our meditation practice, you know? So it's actually balance these four. It's very hard for many of us to actually keep them as sort of a practice, these four exhilarations, but eat well, sleep well, meditate, exercise. If we could actually do that, then it would be a very different story in terms of, um, you know, just feeling a sense of well-being. It's so simple and so profound. Eat well, sleep well, exercise and meditate. That's all it takes, huh? <laughs> I mean, it's certainly helpful, yeah. And I really love what you just said. We want to care for ourselves long enough to come home to who we are. Such a beautiful path. And I don't know how it happened. I just love hearing you talk about meditation and the presence within us, but we're already running low in time. So I do want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Yeah, I think, you know, the main thing here based on our conversation is that Love is not something that we get. It's not something that we need to go buy at Walmart or that we will gain only in relationship to another person. It is something innate to who we are. That sense of bodhicitta, that sense of open and awake heart, mind, 
we couldn't deny it if we if we tried. And just noticing those little moments where our heart softened on something on television, something in the street, a friend is crying and we are holding space for them and we just want them to feel better. That's love. It's already there. So to relish that sense of open and awake heart and not feel like we need other people in order to access it. So beautiful. Love is not something that we get. It's something that we are. It's such a different perspective than what we're usually taught, you know, in our society. We say that if you want love, you have to find the right person rather than discover that you are the right person. Thank you so much, Lodro, for coming on to the show and sharing your wisdom. I'm super excited about your upcoming new book, Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. And you'll just kind of have to come back on the show when it comes out. So when does it come out and what other offerings do you want our listeners to know about? Yeah, it's going to come out in November, so very soon. And, uh, you know, anyone can always reach out to me at lodrorinsler.com. And there's always, you know, different offerings. The main thing that I'm doing these days, you know, starting in January, is my Buddhist immersion, which is a five-month in-depth meditation program. And that's that's sort of a key thing that has been really enjoyable. This will be the third year we're doing it in a row. And, you know, last year we had uh, about 100 people from... Uh, 10 different countries involved. And it's just such a beautiful community experience. So if you would like to join the rest, welcome to do that as well. Mm, you don't want to change your name to Lodro Rinpoche? <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That sounds like a wonderful program beginning in January, a five-month immersion program. Such a wonderful offering. So thank you for your teachings in the world, your books and advice and wisdom. And thank you so much for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember that whatever heartbreak you're going through, it's important to stay present, to notice how things change and to keep an open heart. Remember our task of self-love is not to improve ourselves, but to care for ourselves long enough to come home to who we are. Don't forget to remove all those second arrows we add on to any pain we experience that keeps ourselves in suffering. And also remember that love is not something that we get, it's something that we are. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Lodro. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 